0: Well, if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, our sermon text is going to be 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10. And if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10, give ear to God's Word. Paul writes, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for he brought nothing into the world that we can take... with many pangs, this ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, you know, um, as as a pastor, as a minister of the gospel, uh, I am at times very self conscious about talking about money in the church because uh, what, what's the stereotype? That's all they care about is money. You know, when you watch somebody on TV, half of them that's all they do—is spend time talking about your wallet, and not half the time talking about the Bible, but. You know, it's one of those uh, truisms that, you know, if, if you were to read your Bible, and I hope you do this, I know you can't do it in one sitting, read your Bible from cover to cover, and I have not done this this way, and mark down with a tally how many times the Bible talks about money. I think we'd all be shocked how many times it does. It, it comes up again and again. Uh, it'll come up again in this book. This isn't the first time in First Timothy. It won't be the last time in First Timothy that Paul talks about money I dare say neither Paul nor Timothy were focused upon earthly riches and so when a text in scripture brings it up we bring it up Uh, God put it here for our good Um, this, this in our text is probably I'm guessing the most familiar verse or part of this passage is the most familiar verse in the pastoral epistles for most Christians we hear the love of money is a root of all evil King James puts it that way uh, and yet how many of us who know the Lord and have been hearing this text and reading his word, how many of us who are familiar with this very passage uh, haven't taken the time to carefully consider it and examine our own hearts and lives in light of it? It's one of those things, like many things in life, it's easy to say it, but it's, it's not very common that we take the time to think through it and actually live in light of it and the very fact if you think about it, you know, this, this letter was written about the church it's written in some ways to the church while why we're studying it but it was written first and foremost initially to Timothy Timothy was a young protege pastor apprentice pastor whatever you want to say of the apostle Paul you know when I when I was studying for ministry and working towards ordination I had a few different internships at churches and we had these I hate to say it like this. It sounds so crass. But a checklist of things we had to do. And I I had the privilege of being interns at good churches with godly pastors. But I wasn't an intern under the Apostle Paul. Timothy basically was. And Paul trusted Timothy, among other men, to, to stand in his place in the church in Ephesus for a time. While Paul was away. And yet Paul felt it necessary to warn even Timothy about these things and that fact should serve to us as a warning that we ourselves today are by no means beyond the reach of the temptation and the snare or the trap of the desire after earthly riches. As harmful as false teaching is if you were with us last Sunday you might remember that Paul in the previous text talked about those who would teach different doctrine false teaching as as dangerous as that is um, frankly, it's often covetousness and the love of money that leads more people to wander away from the fake, as Paul says in verse 10, than even than false doctrine. I think that's one of the many reasons the Bible talks so much about money. It warns against the dangers of the love of it. The love of money, and not money in and of itself, leads to all kinds of other sins and evils. It, it is a trap that leads to many a uh, temptation. You know, when you when you hear about scandals in politics and whatnot, um, what is the one phrase you probably hear more than any? If, in fact, if you're in law enforcement, this is probably a a dictum that you live by. Follow the what? Follow the money. Almost every time, it leads you to what's really going on. Well, there's a reason for that, isn't there? The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Not only does our Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospels tell us in Matthew 6 that you cannot, it's a strange sounding phrase if you think about it, you cannot serve God and money. None, none of us imagine that we're serving money. But Jesus says many people do and you can't serve money and God. Paul also tells us in Colossians 3.5 That covetousness or greed is idolatry. You may have never bowed down to a statue a day in your life, but you might be an idolater if you worship and serve money. It is also a sin, covetousness is, and the love of money is, and here's something you don't probably think about, it is a sin that bars one from the kingdom of God. As we'll see in Ephesians 5 verse 5. How easily we fall into temptations like this and how serious, how much more serious a sin this is than we think about. I don't think maybe any of us really think about that on a given day as being a heinous sin against God and yet it is. So we're going to look at a few things from our text, Lord willing. The first thing we're going to look at is, uh, is godliness with contentment. You know, in the in the previous passage, verses three through five that we looked at last Lord's Day, Paul warned about false teachers who would view godliness as what? A means of gain, as a way of making money and worldly worldly wealth. Now now when Paul said that he wasn't speaking of true godliness, was it? He uses the word, but he's really talking about a counterfeit godliness, a pretend piety of sorts. False teachers saw and still see Christianity and the Christian ministry as a means of gaining worldly wealth and prosperity. That that was the case in Paul's day 2,000 years ago, and not much has changed since then. There are many ministers today who are just in it for the money and maybe the notoriety, and, and so Paul here counters that wicked mindset of seeing godliness Uh, as a means of gain he counters that wicked mindset with the right godly mindset of true ministers and believers in the gospel of Christ in verse 6 he says but godliness with contentment is great gain he doesn't just contradict it he raises it up a notch he says you know they they have it right in the wrong way godliness isn't a means of gain godliness is great gain It's better than that, but it has to be godliness with contentment. You see the difference between the false teachers and what Paul is encouraging us towards in our text. Godliness is not to be viewed as a means to an end. Instead, true godliness is to be seen as great gain in and of itself, provided it is done and followed with a spirit of contentment in our hearts. It brings to mind Paul's words about godliness in the previous a couple chapters ago in 1st Timothy chapter 4 verses 7 and 8 1st Timothy 4 7 and 8 Paul says this we looked at this a while, a, few, a while back he says to Timothy have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths rather train yourself for godliness there's that word again for while bodily training is of some value godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come there are many blessings that God gives and promises for godliness it holds blessings a promise of blessings not just for heaven but for this, this life as well if we have the eyes of faith to see it and follow after it but how few professing believers actually make godliness their pursuit You know, Paul actually tells Timothy in verse 11, the next passage, to make that his pursuit. Don't just talk about it. Chase after it. Pursue it. Follow after godliness. And perhaps, I think maybe the reason that some of us don't make that our pursuit is we don't really see it to be great gain. We have to be persuaded uh, by faith in God's promise that godliness really is great gain for the believer and not just a source of great gain how is godliness gain for the Christian maybe you're asking that to yourself right now how is godliness great gain for you if you're a Christian this morning uh, there's a few, a few things that I think we can uh, say about that um, and a consideration of these things that we're going to look at I hope be a, an encouragement to you to pursue godliness in all that you do rather than the things of this world Uh, First, the first way, and this is just a few things, I couldn't possibly list them all. But Here's a few few ways that godliness is great gain for the believer in Christ. First, godliness means that we are more and more being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. You know, there's, there's an old, I don't know if it's first a country song or a reggae song, but there's a saying, you know, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go right now kind of thing. Um, well, when you think of heaven, what, what's one of the things that makes heaven, heaven? The fact that there will be no sin and misery there, and that you yourself will be free completely from the presence of sin, not just in others, but in you. That you will be perfectly conformed to the image of your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. John says in 1 John, We shall see him, and we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he, Christ, is pure. That's the hope of heaven and the hope of glory. What does Paul say in Romans 8:28 and 29? He says, and we know, we always talk about the first part of this passage, right? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who have been called according to his purpose. But then in verse 29, Paul says, For, it's a connecting word, because, for this reason, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So God makes all things work together for your good if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, And they will work towards your benefit. But what is the primary good that that is supposed to work things towards in your life? What what good is it that God uses all these things, even the bad things in your life, to accomplish being conformed to the image of His Son? Conformity to Christ is the good that God makes all things work for in your life. The The second good thing and blessing of growing in godliness. Growing in godliness in Christ means that we are growing in holiness or sanctification in Christ. You know, we often, I think, I know I do at times, maybe you do too, we need to be convinced somehow that holiness and not sin is good for us. That holiness is its own reward in many ways. And on the contrary, sin and worldliness is bad for us and positively harmful toward us. What does the writer of Hebrews say about the fatherly, this is Father's Day, right? He talks about the fatherly discipline or chastisement of God in the lives of his, of his children. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 9 through 11. Hebrews 12, 9 through 11 says this, Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them, or we honored them. Shall we, much more, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? And here it is. For they, our earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, that is God, he disciplines us for our good. And what is that good? That we might share in his what? holiness holiness is for our good and then he says for the moment for the time being all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it so God disciplines us at times uh, his children uh, which is not pleasant at the time but it is for our good And what is that good that God has in mind for you, even through his chastisements? Not just that you might be holy. That would be enough. How does the writer of Hebrews put it? That we might share in his holiness. You're not just being conformed to Christ's image. You're sharing in the holiness of God, your heavenly Father, in Jesus Christ. Third, godliness fits us for heaven. It conforms us to the image of Christ. It, it is for our good that we grow in holiness and sanctification. And by doing that, godliness fits us more and more for heaven. Second Peter 3, 11-13, there the Apostle Peter writes this. He's talking about the Judgment Day. He says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved or destroyed, what sort of people ought you to be In lives of holiness and, there's the word, godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So if we're living in light of those truths that this is not our this is not our home this is not heaven but there is going to be a new heavens and new earth and the things of this world will be will be destroyed in God's judgment what sort of people he says ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness godliness testifies to everyone around you that this is not your home and not just that but that you have a real home waiting for you in heaven one day. That's much better than anything this world affords. As the Apostle John says in 1 John 2.17, John says and the world is passing away along with its desires but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Godliness sets its sights on lasting things and glory in eternity. Psalm 84.11 Psalm 84.11 says this, No good thing does He, that's God, no good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. You might, as sometimes even the psalmist said in Psalm 73, sometimes it feels like God is withholding something. God does not withhold any good thing, anything that's actually good for you, if you're walking uprightly in Jesus Christ. The second thing in our text we're going to look at is covetousness and contentment. Covetousness and contentment. Paul adds a little caveat of sorts to the gain of godliness, doesn't he? He doesn't just say godliness is great gain. He says godliness with contentment is great gain. What is contentment? One of those words might be kind of hard to define, but I'll define it negatively, if that's okay. Contentment is in many ways the polar opposite of covetousness. It is the polar opposite of covetousness. Covetousness, you might know, I'm sure most of you know this, is what is forbidden in the Tenth Commandment. What is the Tenth Commandment? You shall not, Exodus 20:17. you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. In case we missed a point, anything that is someone else's, that is your neighbor's. Covetousness, in many ways, is a sin not only against God, but also against our neighbor. Covetousness is a sin against our neighbor because when you covet, covetousness is not just saying, I wish I had that. Covetousness, at its heart, is saying, Why do they have that and I don't? You see the difference? Wanting something is not necessarily a sin. But saying in your heart, why does that person have that? I'm better than them. I should have that. Maybe they shouldn't have it. But covetousness is sitting against your neighbor because you're resenting the prosperity in God's providence that your neighbor enjoys. It is a sin against God in that in, co- in, in coveting, we show contempt or scorn for God's all-wise and powerful providence in our lives, we're saying, God has not done right by me. I should have x, y or z. God has not given me what is fair. When we covet, we think that we deserve better than what God has chosen to give us. And in so doing, we think that we are somehow wiser than God. You know, there's an old gospel track, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's to say, I think I have a better plan, a more wonderful plan for my life than God does you're a Christian, God does have a wonderful plan for your life, but it might not be what you expect. Contentment, on the other hand, contentment trusts God's good and wise providence in our lives. And so, in that, it's a protection, it's a defense against many a temptation and snare. Covetousness, as we're going to see later in our text, leads to a great many temptations, sins, and even destruction in the end. Thomas Watson, my favorite Puritan writer, um, he's, he's a little more brief than some of the other Puritans, of which is why I like him. He's a little more simple. Um, he has a book called The Ten Commandments, and you'll never guess what it's about. It's about the Ten Commandments. Um, and he goes through each one at, at length. And in his treatment of the tenth commandment against covetousness, he notes, he's not exhausted, but he notes at least six ways that we can be covetous uh, people without maybe realizing Six ways. One of those ways, he says, is quote, A man may be said to be given to covetousness when he takes more pains for getting earth than for getting heaven. He will turn every stone, break his sleep, take many a weary step for the world, but will take no pains for Christ or heaven. That's a worldly person, that's a covetous person, I pray that that's none of you. Such a person takes more pains for earth than he does for gaining heaven. Now notice this. This doesn't necessarily entail anything that's outwardly wicked. That's that's a key thing to remember. He's not talking necessarily about theft or fraud. He's simply describing someone whose thoughts are taken up by the things of this world and who lives primarily for the things of this world rather than for the things of heaven you don't have to be a thief to do that you just have to be worldly minded and covetous and what does Paul say in our text about this very thing in verse 7 he tells us that we should pursue godliness with contentment as great gain precisely because we brought nothing into the world verse 7 and we cannot take anything out of the world he says what's the first word in that verse for because, for this reason, why is godliness with contentment great gain? Because you brought nothing with you when you came into this world and you can take nothing with you when you leave it. Reminds us of the words of Job in Job one twenty one. Job says, after all these bad things happened to him and he lost almost everything, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's contentment. Even under you know trial and affliction of, of the kind that we can only horrifically imagine. And he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. Watson also takes note that a covetous person is a person whose thoughts, whose affections and desires and whose words are all about the things of this world. Not only that, but a covetous person's heart is so set on the things of this world, quote, that he, quote, overloads himself with worldly business so that he cannot find time to serve God. Sometimes covetousness is just being so busy that you don't have time for God. You're so taken up by the things of this world, by your work, by whatever the case may be, that you cannot find or make time to serve God. Last but not least, the covetous person sets his heart so firmly on the things of this life that to get it he says he cares not what unlawful means he uses now we're getting into outward sins that come from covetousness a person who is covetous he often breaks the other nine commandments because in their heart they've already broken the tenth the tenth commandment is a way of breaking all the other nine When you covet something, you steal. When you covet something, you commit adultery. When you covet something, you murder, and so on and so on. Watson goes on to note that covetousness is an enemy to grace. That should get our attention. An enemy to grace in that it chokes out many good things in a man's life. He says it even hinders the the efficacy of the word preached. It hinders, covetousness does, the efficacy of of the word of God being preached now why is that you think about Christ's parable of the sower Matthew 13 in that parable what are the thorns and what do the thorns do to the seed the thorns choke out the seed of the word causing it to be unfruitful and what are those thorns Matthew 13:22. the thorns are quote the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of what riches they choke out the word of God being preached, making it unfruitful. In verse eight, Paul goes on to elaborate what true, true Christian contentment should look like. There he says, "But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content." Easy to read that verse, not not very easy to like. Put that, take it to heart. Now the word clothing. It it really is the word covering, and it probably has the idea of shelter. He's not saying we should all be living outside in a tent, right? He's not saying that your whole life should be camping. Some of us might like that, some of us probably wouldn't. Um, What he's saying is you have the basic necessities. You know, no matter how well or not well off I've ever been in my life, I've never lacked the necessities. I may not have liked the clothing I had as a kid, but I wasn't naked, I wasn't cold. I always had food in the refrigerator and on the table, and so have you. With food and clothing we shall be content. Now that, that word shall, with these we shall be content. It's a future tense, uh, but it's a future tense used as an imperative or, an, or kind of an implied command. You know, when you're when you're a mom or dad, what do you tell their kid your kids? You say, You will clean your plate. Doesn't mean they really will. You you will clean your room. You're not saying. You're not predicting the future. You're not saying, "I predict that Ben is going to make his bed." You're saying, "You're going to do this. You're going to clean your room. You're going to put your laundry away. You're going to put your, you know, it's a command. That's the same kind of sense that that uh, Paul is saying here. With these, we will be or should be content. It brings to mind the words of Christ Himself in Matthew chapter eight, verses eighteen to twenty. It says, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. Imagine doing that as a, as a pastor in a church. Oh, there's too many people here. <laughs> I'm going to leave and go somewhere else. Like, too many people, sorry, you know, we have a, we have a limit. Uh, but it says he, he gave orders to go to the other side. And a scribe, a religious professional, right? A scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. You want to go over there on the other side of the lake? You got it. You, you say the word and I'm, I'm going. Right? I will follow you wherever you go and Jesus said to him, Oh good, I'm so glad you said that. I've been waiting for someone just like you. No, he didn't say that at all. He said, he said, Foxes have holes and birds in the air have nests but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. How's that sound? That guy didn't follow him, did he? I'll follow you anywhere. Not there. He I, I have a, I have all these things I have to take care of. No, he wouldn't follow Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that we should never live in houses or own houses, uh, but what it does mean is that if we're following Christ, we should understand going in that it may involve some difficulty in this life. If Christ wasn't, quote-unquote, living his best life now, according to the world standards, then those of us who are following him shouldn't expect much better, and we shouldn't be shocked. When we have tribulation in this world, Christ must come first in all things and we must follow wherever he leads. Think about the Lord's Prayer that we pray so often both in our families and together here as a church. We, we pray for our daily bread, Matthew six eleven. The fact that we pray for our daily bread ought to serve as a reminder that none of us are promised earthly riches in this life. What we are promised is enough. Enough for the day, enough for the next day, when that day comes around. Well, that leads us to lastly, but not least, to the third thing, and that's the love of money. Sounds like a movie title. Uh, the love of money. Look at verses 9 through 10 of our text. Paul says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now the first thing to keep in mind here is the desire to be rich and the love of money is not only the sin of rich people. There there might be more poor people who are guilty of this than there are rich people who are guilty of it. Or at least as many. There's more poor people, right? It is not Jesus isn't saying Those evil, rich people. He's saying, don't love money. You might have a lot of money, don't love it. Don't serve it. You might not have a lot of money, trust God's providence, and don't resent it. The the desire to be rich, not necessarily being rich, brings with it, Paul says, at least three dangers. At least three dangers. The first of those dangers, Paul says, is falling into temptation. Falling into temptation. How often does an unhealthy desire after the things of this world tempt us as believers to commit sin? We gamble, we cheat, we steal, we rob God of our tithes, we withhold earthly goods from those who are in need. Why? Because we are tempted by the desires after riches. The desire for earthly riches has brought about many a fall into temptation, sin, scandal, and even ruin the second danger that Paul mentions it's it's related to the first he calls it a snare he says many fall into a snare or a trap it's like the bait on a hook or like cheese on a mousetrap in other words the desire for riches and prosperity promises us good things but in the end it delivers us nothing but ruin and misery be careful what you wish for note also that riches themselves are not the problem you know, it's, it's one of those things. You know, if, how, how do most of us define riches? I'll give you a hint. I bet this is true of you as it is of me. It's never you. It's always the person who has a little bit more than you. If you, got, if you get a raise but somebody else got more, ah, that guy's rich. No. A lot of people in the world think we're rich. And they wouldn't be wrong in some ways. But it's a trap. It promises us good things, but it doesn't give us what it promises and note that again, riches aren't the problem. Paul, I know this is anachronistic to say this, but it's still true. Paul was not a Marxist. Paul was not a Marxist. He did not condemn the rich. He did not promote covetousness and envy against them, as so many do, even in the church today. In fact, it, later in this very chapter, I'll let you peek ahead, uh, he actually instructs Timothy about the rich in the church. There were rich people in the church in Ephesus and Paul didn't say to Timothy go like this. Oh, you should throw it all away. He didn't tell them that at all. What he did tell them, he told Timothy to give the rich in the church certain charges or commands such as not sitting their hopes on uncertain riches but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He says God provides you with everything richly To enjoy. You're not supposed to have a guilt trip over it, but you don't trust in those riches. You don't put your hopes on those riches. He tells them also, in verse 18, to be what? To be rich in good works. In other words, if you have money, God has entrusted that to you for a reason. Don't waste it. Do good with it. Be rich, not just in money, but in good works. He tells them and and charges them to be generous and to share and tells them to store up treasure for themselves in heaven, verse 19. Don't focus on earthly riches, is all he's really saying. The third danger that Paul points out here and warns us of in our text, is is they're all closely related, Uh, but the third one is those who desire to be rich fall into, and that's a present tense, right? They presently, as a matter of course, they happen by, by habit to fall into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction there's a temptation and ends up drowning them is kind of the word picture that Paul paints here is Paul overstating this danger it sounds pretty overstated to our ears it plunges them to ruin and destruction how does covetousness do that Ephesians chapter 5, verses 5 through 6. Listen to Paul's words here. Ephesians 5, 5 through 6, he says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things what things? sexual immorality and covetousness because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience we we tend to think of the first part of that list right away oh somebody sexually immoral or a murderer or a thief and they don't repent they're going to hell what does Paul say? If you are, present tense, as a manner of life, covetous, it's because of things like that that the wrath of God comes upon the wicked. A covetous person, Paul says there and elsewhere, is an idolater. Think about how wicked a sin idolatry is. When you read your Old Testament, when you read the prophets especially, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all the minor prophets... What's the major sin in most cases, maybe all of them, for which God sends judgment? Even things as drastic as the Babylonian captivity and, and Jerusalem being destroyed. What was the sin that brought that judgment? More than one. Idolatry. False religion. Even trying to worship God, the true God, through a false means, through idols. All of, their, all of their chastisements and judgments has some something to do with idolatry. Paul's not saying covetousness is no big deal. He calls it idolatry. Jesus says in Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other and then he spells it out. You cannot serve God and money idolatry is worshipping and serving and living for something other than God it is easy to serve and base your whole life after money but it's idolatry to do so now what else does Paul say about the covetous person who is an idolater They, they might be all after riches but they really aren't because they don't have any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God They've set their sights way too low and way too short-minded in time. They don't have their minds set on eternity. In fact, he's saying that they are strangers to grace, that they abide under the wrath of God. And as Paul says, it's because of these things, even covetousness, that the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Lastly, Paul sums it up in verse 10, the last verse of our text. He says, For, because... For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, the love of money is a, not the, root of all kinds of evils. Now, that word "evils," it's a very broad term. It includes sins as well as the the resultant miseries, the things that come up as a result of those sins, right? All kinds of evils. It brings all kinds of sin and misery into our lives. Think about Do we really believe that? Do we believe that covetousness and the love of money actually brings bad things into your life? Sin and attendant miseries. That's why Paul says godliness with contentment is great gain. Your life will be so much better if you are pursuing godliness with contentment and God's providences in your life. And notice he says, some have even, quote, wandered away from the faith because they have loved the things of this world more than they love God. You know, many people have wandered away by false teaching. That is a sad, awful reality. But how many more, I think, have wandered away over the lusts of this world? I have known pastors, people who were studying for ministry, who have wandered away from the faith not because they were taught wrong, but because their hearts were set on the things of this world. They were serving, at the end, money rather than God. And what did they get for their trouble? Happy life? Easy street? No, piercing themselves with many sorrows. All it brings, in the end, is pain, misery, regret, and sometimes, in the end, perdition. Just like Judas. What did Judas do? He betrayed Christ for 30 pieces of silver and then when he regretted it and tried to give it back, he couldn't. He was serving money rather than Christ even though he walked with Christ all that time during the earthly ministry of our Lord. Hebrews 13, 5 maybe a familiar verse to some of you. It says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said according to the Old Testament God has said I will never leave you nor forsake you. Part of the motivation for, for contentment with God's providence and not, not falling for the love of money is that you have God. And that God will never leave you or forsake you. Why do we trust in money? Why do we, Why do we spend so much time worrying about our bank accounts and our retirements? Those aren't bad things, but why do we spend so much time wringing our hands over those things it's because we're worried they're going to go away. Sometimes they do go away. You know who doesn't go away? God. He will never leave. you're a Christian, He will never leave you or forsake you, which means He'll take care of you. He will provide for you. You don't have to worry. Remember what Jesus said about the flowers and the birds of the air? The flowers, they don't spin or toil, but even Solomon and all his glory wasn't clothed like that. The birds... The birds of the air, they don't plant, they don't dig and plant seeds and your father feeds them. How much more valuable are you than they? God will take care of you. And so be content with what you have because you have God. And you have the hope of heaven and riches in heaven. And God in Christ will never leave you or forsake you. So if you're a believer in Christ, if you want, you should want real gain. You, you should want great gain. Just don't set your sights on things that are too far, you know, too nearsighted or whatever. You're not thinking long-term enough. You're not thinking You're not thinking big enough. If your heart is set on the things of this world, think of riches in heaven. If you want real great gain, make godliness with contentment your pursuit. Be content with your earthly estate. If you can improve it in a, in a godly means, in a lawful means, by all means do so, but seek instead to lay up treasure for yourself in heaven. That's a life with no regrets. That's a life with great gain to the glory of God and Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great kindness and provision for us that you give us all good things to enjoy. You have provided for us more than we ever should have hoped or imagined far more than we deserve, as Gertie always tells us when we ask How are you better than I deserve? We all have it in Jesus. So much better than we deserve. So much more than we have any idea or can imagine. Lord, we ask that you would work in us by your spirit. Give us grace not to be covetous. Give us grace by your spirit to see how good we have it that we might be content because you will never leave us or forsake us. Keep us free from the love of money. Keep us free from covetousness and from grumbling against your providence. Give us grace to trust you and your goodness towards us, to, to give you thanks in all things, and teach us to be content with what we have. And Lord, we ask if there is anyone here this morning or listening online at home that is still a stranger to Christ and does not yet know you. If they if they are covetous, if they are not uh, if they are not trusting in and, and thanking you for your provision, but are coveting and therefore being idolaters, we pray that you might grant them repentance. Convict them of their sin. Grant them repentance and faith in Christ. Save them from their sin. Turn them from useless idols to serve the one true and living God in all their days that they might have treasure and a mansion in heaven. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, our final hymn this morning is a familiar one. It's 429. It's Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing.